Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Pastor. Dr. Robin, how are you this new week? Well, it's Monday again. It is Monday again. It just keeps happening. <laughs> I feel like I feel like this could be Groundhog Day. Mm, it's fair. It's fair. <laughs> but it's Monday, and we're already into late April. Can you believe that? I, I can't. I have so I have a, a fun event that I am going to be attending in May, and when I realized back. I don't know, probably February that I was going to be able to be vaccinated and that everybody else that was going to be attending this event was going to be vaccinated and that it really actually might happen. I kept thinking, oh my God, like it's so far away. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's in like two and a half weeks. And I don't even know, like I'm going to actually have to pack a suitcase and like get things ready to travel, which it just feels so bizarre to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so same. I, I I started a packing list for my great sabbatical adventure because I've not packed a suitcase since January of 2020. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking, you know, because, you know, you and I used to travel all the time. And so my ditty bag um, had, all of my travel things. Um, I've since changed deodorants because the deodorant I was using no longer works. So I went to an all natural one. So now I'm thinking like, oh, I I probably need to check my ditty bag and like, you know, like refill my Q-tips. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, and some of that stuff probably has dust on it and doesn't open right. anymore. It is all, it's right. all you know, right. dried up. So, yes, we, we both need to start to understand that life in a, um, in a, in a new, in this kind of newly uh, expounded world where we might travel and might pack a suitcase is going to look a little different because we're actually going to have to get our shit together for the yeah. first time in a year. Yeah. And, and, you know, what was so interesting is we were over at some friend's house last night and, um, our friend Taylor said, you know, in the olden days and, and, and the olden days is, uh, pre pandemic, you know, 2019. Yeah. yeah. So I'm like, Oh yeah, that's, that's yeah. The olden days, um, we, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. So way back then. <laughs> yeah. So I am I am thinking about the fact that it's April 19th and I am leaving for roughly 6 weeks on May 4th and do I have everything and Right. Um, you know, I've got to pack up this podcast stuff, but luckily I have a gear bag, so I think that won't be a problem, but you know, just like trying to get my shit together because yeah. I just stay in my underwear and tank all day. And now, 
And and like the past four days, I have put on real clothes. I mean, pants are no joke when you actually realize that you have to start wearing them again. <laughs> right. Right. It's a, right. It's a real struggle. Um, I am. I'm grateful that everything still fits me. Um, yeah. Same. I. I am. Uh, in fact, some things are a little loose, which oh. is a little surprising, but I'm, I'm a welcomed uh, a welcomed result after. A, com- a complete, you know, shit show of eating and drinking during, you know, a year's worth. Of- <laughs> because we weren't dieting. We weren't trying to lose weight. We weren't. Yeah. We weren't. <laughs> I was like, let me eat all the food in case the world falls apart. Which, by the way, it's April 19th and the world is still on, on fire. It's still on fire. We are, you know, the closing arguments have started for the Derek Chauvin um, murder trial. We have watched... a. Just an accelerated number of mass shootings happen over the last week. Um, I am, you know, it, there, there's a new piece of the country every day that's being affected by something that they didn't think would ever reach their corner of the neighborhood. Right. And I'm just, I, I don't, I don't know what to attribute it to um, other than to just say that this newfound um, there's nothing normal about this, but this newfound state that we find ourselves in is accelerating everything that may have sat a a little dormant for the last four months or the last six months. Um, You know, we know that in the heart of the pandemic, many of us um, were, you know, very vocal and very verbal about what we were seeing happen in Minneapolis and what we were seeing happen in Kentucky with Breonna Taylor. And um, I I don't know, I I don't know what to attribute this, um, this spike in violence to, other than to possibly say, maybe it isn't a spike at all. We're just all incredibly, um, we have, we have a media that's very sensitive to it and is not going to let anybody get away with not knowing what's mm-hmm. what's happening in the world um but it's painful well, it, it occurs to me that you know we we always talk about how violent the roman empire was and you know we sort of can point to um touchstones throughout history right yes. and i think we are just as violent as prior times the modality has shifted. So instead yes. of swords and bayonets, um, it is assault rifles. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when, when people make this argument of we've not, we've never seen this before. We, we actually have, we, we have, right. this country doesn't, as, as we've said on this podcast, this country doesn't know how to have a historical memory, which is why we deny things like slavery, slavery and police brutality against black people. And it's how anti-blackness can even happen. And, and, and also like, just to talk about the series that we're in, it's how anti-Asian hate can, can happen. Wait, right. We, we forget that we, as a country, um, unjustly, um, incarcerated Japanese persons. Um, so, uh, we live, I mean, I said this, uh, when we were in Charlottesville that, um, 
we live in a culture of violence and, and, and what was happening in Charlottesville was just yet another iteration of the same kind of violence, just different. Um, so we, we are still living in, in that culture of violence that is dominated by things like patriarchy, anti-blackness, white supremacy, etc. Um, and, this is why we have these conversations right. every week, because if we stop talking about it, then the harm accelerates at a pace where we can't stop it. And so right. this is why we continue to to speak up about it. Yeah. And we believe ourselves to be a, a civilized people because mm-hmm. of how technology and, and uh, you know, advancements in society have enabled us to be able to do and see and experience newfound things. And yet the, the, the beings of us as humans, the emotions of us as humans and the things that make us who we are inside have never evolved. Right. We are as violent and as um, cruel as we have ever been. And we are also as brilliant and as in need of community and as dynamic as we have ever been. None of that has changed. Our surroundings may have changed and our cultures may have expanded in ways that we have deemed to make us more, um, you know, culturally advanced. Yeah. But we as humans are the same as we've ever been. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's, that's what um, uh, that allows us, we, we have allowed us, ourselves to forget that yeah. in, in the advancement of other, of other things. Well, as you have said, we are going to continue this really important conversation this week um, with um, our our guests that that we're really excited to have with us. Um, We are welcoming this week uh, Dr. Yuki Schwartz, who is uh, an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ, but is living out their calling as a professor. of constructive and political theologies at Claremont School of Theology, and uh, Yuki comes to us and is and is joining us from the other coast, um, from the West Coast this morning, and we're really really thrilled that we're able to have this conversation and to expand this ever growing narrative around anti Asian violence and anti Asian racism. And with that, we will say a hearty welcome to Dr. Yuki Schwartz. Yes. Dr. Schwartz, welcome to the Activist Theology Podcast. Thank you, Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna. I'm so glad to be here with you this morning. It's morning for me. It is morning for you. It is. It is. It's still morning for me until about 3 p.m. when I lay down for my siesta. So it'd be morning for a while here. Yeah. Well, we would love for you to um, just generously expound on that introduction, that very brief introduction that I made. Um, Tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, how you have uh, found yourself immersed in this work, um, what, what location you find yourself in both socially and from an academic standpoint, and just share a little bit about your, your call and the work that you're doing in the world. So, 
gosh, my story and my, my work, they're so intertwined and inter interconnected because I do the work that I do in order to really save my life and save, uh, save my history. Uh, what Dr. Robin said about this country has no sense of historical memory. Um, it's very much a part of the work that I do. So I am um, Asian American in the very political sense of that original term where Asian American was a consciously created term to encompass the many different diversities of people whose roots and um, history start and what we call Asia today. Um, we're very diverse. We don't always like each other. <laughs> we don't always love each other enough, but um, when this term uh, was created, that was the idea of, of, of bringing together this community in order to um, create together more power in order to create the changes um, so that we could reclaim and renew our histories. Um, so I am specifically Japanese American um, and I am also German American because my, my dad was from, uh, he's a German a kid who was raised in Oklahoma, joined the military, joined the Navy, met my mom in Japan where he was stationed. Um, and so that is their, that is a little bit of their story. Um, and I am currently living in Salem, Oregon, um, where I am at the one of the two sites that Claremont School of Theology currently inhabits. So I'm in our northern end. And um, I knew myself very late in life. Um, Asian American history, Asian American um, perspectives are not something that is widely shared. And so I received only the very basic um, pieces of it throughout my life. And it, was until, it wasn't until I was in my late 30s that I was able to um, find a book and that was Asian American history specifically and where I learned it. And I remember being so angry mm. because I felt like something had been kept from me my entire life. And that experience of finding that book um, led to more questions about why didn't anybody tell me this? Where can I find out more? That led me eventually into seminary. That led me into um, reading more and learning more about Asian and Asian American theology with Asian and Asian American scholars and, and students. And um, it forms a real key part of the work that I do of asking what is the role of Asian and Asian Americans in, um, not just in decolonizing, but also in de-imperializing mm -hmm. because we, we, act, we occupy, we, we sit at these spaces where we are both colonizers and imperial. Um, we are the colonized and imperial colonizers, especially in my history of Japanese um, being Japanese American, I'm very cognizant of the role that Japan played in um, imperialism and colonization in Asia. And these, these perspectives, they don't go away just because we come here and we join into this, you know, wonderful collective understanding of ourselves as Asian Americans when we are able to do that. But um, so, yeah, those are my questions of how do we um, move away from this imperial lure to be able to dream and imagine the world outside of these imperial and colonial structures. I feel curious about something. We've known each other for many years, and it's so good to be connected in this space. 
I, I think we've kept up with each other online, which is not real tangible community, but we we at least have a sense about one another. And and the the thing that I'm curious about is um, how erasure happens for mixed people of color. Um, and what I mean is. I remember clearly my Mexican mother, who is a dark brown caramely hue, saying to me uh, when I was in my PhD work and living in Denver, she said to me in, in front of another Latino, we are not Mexican. And the sort of self-denial, the, the, um, the ways in which because of um, assimilation because of acquiescing into a, a culture of dominance that those those practices chip away at our own history. And so I just feel really curious about how that how that has worked for you or ha- or what what would be analogous um, an analogous experience for you around, you know, did your mom, um, talk about her own history and offer that to you. That's not something that my mother did for me. I, I like you, I've had to uh, reclaim my roots in very, in very intentional ways to piece together, even, even though sort of my cultural orientation and my cultural practices have been very Mexican the sort of racialization piece of that has, has, has not been so. Yeah. So the story of my, um, my historic erasure begins well before I was born. Um, Mm -hmm. my, my father died. Um, he was on a submarine and he had, um, uh, the cause was meningitis. And so he, Mm. uh, uh, brain hemorrhage brought on by meningitis. And so my mom was in Japan at the time with my older brother and I was, I'm not even sure she knew she was pregnant with me yet, but they, the Navy sent a chaplain to her to help her in the processing. And I'm not even sure if it was processing of her grief, but the process of transporting her from Japan into the United States. And if that's oh, wow. not a story about how our immigration system will work to favor some people over another and the so-called line, there's that right. story is my mom got to immediate was in the United States 10 days later after my mom, my dad's death. Mm. And at some point during that conversation or at some point during that pr- process, the chaplain who I am assuming must have been a white guy told my mom, um, don't teach your kids how to speak Japanese because then they'll grow up stupid because he had that very racist understanding of bilingualism that, that, that was a, that would be a hindrance to our assimilation and to our success, which is assimilation. Um, And so she took that very much to heart. I mean, she's in the midst of this trauma and this grief, and then she's having to figure out this new place. I mean, she was, she was from, uh, she was, from a larger city and she moves to rural Oklahoma of all places. And so she's having to get used to that. And so, so much of my mom's um, struggle to survive was keyed along erasing that past to be able to assimilate into the surroundings that she found herself. And it's not that she didn't talk about it, 
But I don't think that she understood her history collectively. She understood her history as something that happened to her, mm. but not something that would mark her as belonging to somewhere else. And she was very tr clearly trying to belong where she found herself. Um, she very desperately was seeking that safety and security um, that that was promised to her in this story of immigration and and American dream, U.S. dream. And so, so there are pieces that she would bring up. Um, there are food that we still, she could not give up food. And so if she couldn't get Japanese food, which is very difficult because we were in a rural part of Oklahoma. And if you've seen the movie Minari, um, which was filmed in Oklahoma. And I remember watching that movie thinking, this looks so familiar. And it turns out it was just down the road from where I grew up. Oh, wow. And so much of that movie was very familiar to me to the point where at one point they talk about having to drive five hours in order to get to the nearest Asian food store. Um, and we couldn't do that because my mom didn't grow up knowing, I mean, my mom didn't drive until she came to the United States. So we weren't going to be able to drive five hours because that was going to be too much for her. And so right. um, that she would, if we could get Japanese food or um, different types of Asian food that she loved, then we, we would get them or, or she would adapt recipes. So that was one thing that, that I didn't lose. But she always had a sense of embarrassment or shame about that because it wasn't authentic in her mm -hmm. mind that um, she didn't see um, how her survival was beautiful and noble. Um, as, as survival stories are. And so um, she just, she was so focused on the work of survival, I think. And that was part of how that erasure happened. Yeah. But also the work of that erasure was that attempt to pass into whiteness because whiteness very much insists that you erase right. this this um, specific history of who you are and this connection to um, other people that may have a claim on your heart. And so part of my work has been to undo that, to know her better, to know the experiences that she came out of better yeah. and to know what it was about this this space that she tried to plant herself in, why it rejected her, or it didn't let her plant well yeah. into her space. Mm. I mean, why could that not happen? Why could it, yeah. um, you know, all the niceness of the people around her in the world couldn't let that happen. Right. And ultimately I would say that um, it's one of the things that I very much attribute to her death because she died three years and 11 months ago this weekend. Mm. And I keep thinking about how there's nothing about these current times that are special because all the things that are happening now are all, were all the things that killed her then. Right. Mm. Do you see or are you able to connect the dots between that um, – that disconnect that you named around or, or, or the, I mean, there, there it's both a disconnect and intentionality around that, that your mother um, possessed and that those around her possessed on her behalf to assimilate her in a way that allowed what, what others perceived to be 
a, a safety net for her or a, or a factor of, of allowing you as, as the children to grow and, and be assimilated more American than you were Japanese. Do you see a connection there uh, with the, the work and the theological um, uh, kind of lineage that, 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 that is drawn between um, that, what you said you're starting to do in your late thirties. Like you are, you, you have, you intentionally took on the, or sought out the education around your history in, in your, in your late thirties. And that led you into seminary. And is there, is there a connectedness between that disconnect that your mother um, experienced and the connectedness that you sought through both a theological understanding and an education of, of your history as a Japanese American? I feel like that ought to be a, an easy question to answer, but mm. somehow it is not mm. um, because my mom was very mad at me for for doing the work that I'm doing, um, partially because it's it's uncovering secrets, right? It's uncovering shames, oh, okay. um, and and so that's uh, that forms actually a large part of my research was shame, uh, because when I remember when I came across discourses on shame, I was very fascinated by it, and I it was only later as I'm unpacking why is it that I'm drawn to this particular research. And why does this, why do the standard theories on shame, the standard discourse on shame, why does that sit so uneasily with me? Because it didn't match my experiences. And it was because, um, because it was because I realized that because I was having to uncover so much that was shameful about um, my history, my life, just the act of, just the act of claiming myself as Asian in a white space is a shameful thing because why my, I remember my mom saying, and, and, and admittedly my, for my mom, my mom always saw us as white um, because we weren't Japanese as far as her consideration was, we were not Japanese, we were white. And so how could I be throwing this away? How could I be not claiming this um, whiteness, um, which she, in her mind was, she worked so hard to get for us. Um, and so it's, there are so many layers and so many complexities built up around these idea of how respectability equals survival, uh, surviving and thriving. And so um, there is this search and assimilation for respect and dignity because respect and dignity will automatically ensure survival. That is the thinking. And and we see this play out in respectability politics all the time. And we saw this happening at the very beginning of um, the Atlanta spa shootings, where the sudden association of, oh, it's a spa, they must be sex workers. So what do we do about that? Without this recognition of it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because there are complex histories and reasons and relationships that all tie into um, tie into what makes us love one another and are human beings with one another and how often it is that our love denies respectability. And it, the odd thing is, is that knowing all of the, my, my mom's shameful past from her experience made me love her and have more compassion for her. I wish I had known this when I was younger where we could have had these conversations. So, um, so that, 
some of the trauma that she was revisiting on us as children would have made more sense. And I think that's part of the, the problem with the history of erasure is that we lose the picture of the fullest pictures of who our ancestors are. And without being able to simultaneously have compassion and hold accountability, um, we lose so much of the relationship and love. I'm, I'm wondering, uh, you and I were trained at um, the same institution for different degrees. And, um, and I, and I, I was introduced to Asian American theology 20 years ago um, with Dr. Nancy Bedford. And um, I was really struck by um, Han and the Korean sense of Han and um, and I'm wondering how, and I don't know what the Japanese equivalent of, of that is, um, but I'm wondering how something like Han, um, is in relationship with shame and, and what, what is kind of the theopolitical, theopolitical impulse there, um, and how might that help us have a deeper conversation? Because I think as we both know, the role of affect and emotion um, um, is so vital in um, recovering a sense of life beyond shame. Um, and so I just have curiosity there uh, about that and didn't know if you in your own research have anything that, that might extend the conversation? So part of the work that I did was, it was really interesting when I started working with shame because you know how at the beginning of academic life, people ask you what you're researching and you tell them. Right. And I would say, oh, well, I researched shame. And I would get these, I would get two responses. One would be somebody who would say, oh, thank God, I have so much shame in my life. I don't know how to deal with it. I don't know what to do with it. I really want to know about your work. And usually people who gave me that response are people from communities who disproportionately bear the brunt of most of the shame in our, in our society, nation, political structures, whatever. Um, but the other response and I, that I would get would, would, were from people who would say, oh, thank God, we just don't have enough shame in our yeah. society. And I remember being floored by that because I would think, where, where do you come from? Um, and it would often turn out that it was somebody from a privileged social location um, who just didn't like, usually it had something to do with tattoos and, you know, bare midriffs at the time. And so, um, but I remember just getting struck by these two vastly different polls on what shame was like. And so my research into shame uh, started, I started examining like the, the discourses about shame. How did the, how was knowledge about shame mm -hmm. um, 
academically produced. And I got really fascinated in the anthropological idea about shame because mm-hmm. um, just the whole history of social sciences and anthropology and this, uh, anthropology, ethnography, psychology, um, sociology, all, how all of these are wrapped up in um, colonialism and in, in imperial desires. And how often it was that shame got lumped into this category with the colonized mm-hmm. and the uncivilized and how shame is uh, is uncategorically described as a primitive emotion right. or a primitive aspect. And I got was struck by that um, as to what this word primitive means. And in the most benign sense, it means that there's a, a, a feeling of strong emotion attached to it, which is, you know, colonial AF in, in that regard. Right. But also um, the concept of shame in uh, Ruth Benedict's book, The Chrysanthemum and the Sword, which was one of the instrumental texts on how shame is, and especially shame in an Asian context, was disseminated into the United States, um, really defined shame as this understanding of culture versus individual um, assuredness, individual identity. And it, it was so fascinating to me that at no point in her, in this whole book did she ever stop and think, what's so wrong about the community having a claim on you? Right. Now, admittedly, we understand how often it is in politics of, of marginalizations and oppressions, the community claim is the key point. The community can claim you in a good way. It can com- complain. It can claim you in a compassionate way, or it can com- it can claim you in a harmful and toxic way. And so much of our experience with shame is the community claiming and placing these limitations and right. and requirements on us through our shame. But what has really fascinated me is what who is being protected from that shame and who ha- who isn't yeah. and isn't there a sharing in this experience of shame and so often when you look at the discourses on shame and the the knowledge about shame how it's a shared emotion so often that sh- shame travels and mutates and twists and turns mm. and um you can end up, you can have an experience that causes you great shame and it'll get attached in some way in your experiences to right. something else that may not even be fam- you know, familiar in some point. And so shame is really difficult to pin down and that's what makes it so mm-hmm. interesting to me. But I'm really interested in it in that sense of how do we claim shame? How does shame help us claim one another in ways that don't demand that we destroy ourselves in order to be claimed. Right. Right. And what I love about the the discourse, the conversations about Han in um, Korean American and Korean theologies is that that very real sense of the connectedness yeah. of suffering, that there is yeah. a relationship um, in that um, experience of suffering. And I think that there is an experience of sharedness in shame as well mm-hmm. that um sylvan Tompkins writes about shame that it is the incomplete reduction of interest which means that you were interested in something or you were taking joy or pleasure into something and then something caused a reduction something caused you to reduce your interest in it rather usually something suddenly and what i always found 
wonderful about this was there was a piece that was all that meant that you were still interested. Yeah. And so I think about shame in that relation in that regard of when there is shame, there is still a desire to be connected because you can't yeah. shame somebody who doesn't care. Right. Um, you can't shame somebody who doesn't want to be in relationship with 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 you. And so there is a need. There is a. I, I focus on that that piece of of this desire to to remain connected with one another. And instead of it's it's I I want to say this very carefully because I don't want to make it come out saying oh that we should all you know be in our shame. Like we should make more shame. We should shame more so shame can <laughs> abound or whatever. Quote Paul very badly, yeah. but. Um, I'm just very interested in the the fact of who gets protected from shame and who isn't. And is there a way to regulate that? And can we share this with one another? Is this a burden that we can bear together? And mm. Sylvan Tompkins gives wonderful um, uh, examples of what that could look like of when somebody is experiencing shame to be able to sit with them and share that with them. And, and, you know, validate the feelings that one is having of, of their worth and dignity mm-hmm. um, and still um, recognize that, well, something, something was exposed, something was exposed in your experience, whether it was about you or was it, whether it was about the world or something that you did or something that was, that was, that seems off that may, that is forcing you or asking you to reassess um, your full interest in something. And, um, it's not necessarily because so often in in shame there may be something that needs to be reassessed. And mm-hmm. so, for example, if I I have had deep shame, of course, I mean the United States. There's no way I'm not going to have deep shame about my sexuality. Right. Um, and what was what was essential for me was to fully live into and embrace the thing that I shamed was ashamed of the most. Mm. And then also finding that it's not that that was, it's not that that embrace made things 100% better. I mean, there are still avenues within that full embracing of that identity or that experience. There's still, um, there's still navigations that have to happen within my embrace of my sexuality that's going to cause shame at some point. But can I turn it to be a shared shame or a healthier shame that builds new worlds together and new relationships mm-hmm. rather than causing me to cut off these pieces of myself in order to feel like I need to fit in or to stay in relationship? Mm. Yeah. And, you know, just as you talk about the relationship between Han and suffering and shame, I I think that we in this culture in the United States, we don't do a good job of suffering with one another, which is why shame becomes so harmful for people. Um, Instead of connecting relationally in our suffering, to kind of minimize or mitigate the harm of shame, you know, we, we could certainly do better. Um, all, all to say uh, the field of theology and ethics has so many gifts for this culture um, if used in just ways. 
Ain't that the truth? Yeah. Yeah. I love that both of you have um, kind of introduced this understanding and this the necessity around community and the necessity around connectedness. And even as you, Dr. Schwartz, kind of speak to this community claim that um, we can have on one another in good and holistic ways, not in harmful ways, our understanding of community and our understanding of withness uh, of not just not just living amongst others and being in dialogue with others, but actually engaging in the walk of another's life alongside them, if it is related to shame, if it is related to suffering, but also when it is related to joy and when it is related to fulfillment and when it is related to um, the energy that comes with seeing a, a, a life, you know, well, well lived out. I'm, I would love to hear more about how that aspect of witness, that aspect of community has influenced both your, um, both the, the theo ethics that you bring into your work as a professor, but also how it has transformed your understanding of your queerness or your understanding of yourself as an Asian American in the midst of all of this that's happening in the world. I think one of the things that that the, the the key piece that has been transformative to me is realizing how the claim goes both ways. So the shame has to go both ways too. That it can't just be the community's claim or the community's shame on one person, but that person has to be have the ability and the right and the power to be able to turn that around and have claim on the community and make demands of the community and also to turn the shame on the community as well when the community is acting in a way that mm-hmm. could yes. be deemed as shameful, yeah. which is something that in our current politics, I mean, Jeremiah Wright saying, God damn America in the most, you know, for me, sensible way of calling the country into account for its sins. That's an example of that. And he has continues to be demonized right. for that for that one taken out of context clip. Um, and so to me, the, the, I mean, there are just so, have been so many impacts of this research and this work on um, my life and my work because it hasn't been, I, I couldn't, I, I mean, I, I related my story where it started with one book, but that one book just wasn't a book. It was, born out of the conversations and the work and the relationships that went into building this knowledge together, finding these histories, um, compiling these voices, getting it published. And, and I, I don't think that I'm exceptional in that I can't think of new things independently. I need the guidance of my community. And so for my queerness, I mean, I'm 49 years old and it's only in the last few years that I started to realize and claim my queerness as somebody who's recognizing that, oh, I am non-binary, oh, that I am asexual, that, oh, I have all these understandings of myself that I didn't have because I didn't have concepts and words and frameworks. And that goes back to my Asian Americanness too, because I didn't have the words that 
that told me in ways that I could grasp who I am. And in every interaction that I have, whether it has been in my theological communities and my or my student communities or my colleagues, um, both in ministry and in academia, um, the the relationships and the ability to see ourselves reflected and to know ourselves more in in the words and the symbols and the the stories and the the work. Um, all of these things build worlds. And this is what I, I firmly come to believe is theology is not about what I believe. It is about how our, how our belief and our world building is fundamentally intertwined that you can't pull them apart. And so what kind of worlds are we building? And are we building toward queerness? And are we building toward a racial solidarities, class solidarities, um, gender solidarities, just everything. What kind of solidarities are we building? And I've, and, uh, and this is up against, it, it, theologically speaking, this is up against an insist institution that is trying to keep things um, solid and static for 2000 years. Um, and so can we, it is our world against that world. It is our world building against that world building. Of course, it's not been keeping it static for 2000 years. Yeah. The, the iteration that we have is what, 20 years old, 30 years old, the one that the rating model, yeah. but it is that thing of, of what kind of world are we building and what kind of openness um, are we building toward? And, and also how are we building with, with one another instead of atop one another? It, it reminds me of the work of Glodian Zalua, whose entire corpus is on world building. And she uses the metaphor of bridging as a way to talk about coalitional work. And when we, and, and bridging for Anzalua is deeply relational and it's not transaction related. But, you know, Anzalua really revolutionized the feminist movement in the Bay Area, you know, with her work. And I think people forget that um, women of color of all varieties have contributed to some kind of coalitional world building and because of the way academia works because of the whitewashing of the discourse uh it's another act of erasure that that then minimizes the contributions and so i really like that uh what you're offering um both as a tactic of visibility of the work from minoritized bodies um, which are really make up the global majority. Um, and also that, th that theology and ethics is um, primarily around world building. I mean, the stories of Jesus were about world building. It, it wasn't about dogma and certainty. Uh, it, it was about what kind of world do we want to build? And, and how do we build the kingdom of, of heaven on earth? Um, and, you know, as Emiko Soltis told us last week, the civil rights discourse gets watered down and, and doesn't include all the elements of human rights. Um, and, and, and if we were to go back to the stories of Jesus and to sort of 
lay on top the stories of Jesus and human rights discourse, we would see something very similar. Um, equity and justice for all. Um, and how and how vital that is to make the kind of world we long to inhabit. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and of course, the problem that we face in academia or in academic theology is that is is that it is that that is the place where the uh, so much erasure happens, right? Where knowledge is determined, whose knowledge is determined to be legitimate or justifiable and who's is kept out or ashamed. Yeah. And something that I really um, am, uh, I, I would love to be able to say, this is something that I'm doing with my students. I'm very new to teaching and, and this work. So something I am trying to develop um, very much inspired and and led by Gloria Zaldua and, and Paulo Freire and Bell Hooks and so many others who are teaching, trying to, who, who taught the model of the people, people bring their wisdom and their yeah. knowledge into the classroom. And that knowledge and that wisdom is just as legitimate mm -hmm. as anything that Niebuhr wrote or Tillich wrote mm -hmm. or Schleiermacher wrote. Mm -hmm. And how do we emphasize that theology, how can we hold our theologies lightly? as we bring them in and let them be enriched by the conversations that we have with one another and right. in our, in our reading and in our research. Um, and also, but still always prioritizing the roots and the soil that, that theology that we bring into the classroom, right. um, prioritizing that piece. Um, because we write theology for and with our communities right. and not for, academia. And of course, sometimes we have to write for academia. Yeah. And the challenge, especially in these times of education paradigm shifts, as they say, um, the challenge is how can we do, um, how can we take hold of this paradigm shift and start prioritizing these models of, of theology building so that we are always remembering the root. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and I think about even just to recall Gaudian Zalua, she she wrote um, theory that included planetary life. She talked about having sex with a tree. She talks about this intimate relationship she has with a cat and how much of academic theology excludes plant relationship with planetary life and how much sort of queer scholarship and echo scholarship includes these planetary givings that we have. And, you know, you talk about the soil and the earth. Um, and I'm, I'm just reminded in the before times in the olden days, uh, pre pandemic, I would, I would go to my ancestral home in Oaxaca, Mexico about every six months. And that being on that soil, it did something to my writing. It, you know, I wrote part of activist theology in Oaxaca, Mexico, also in Cuba and other places. But it there's something about the earth, the tangibility of the earth that that I mean, I believe that we are porous beings and 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 that we are impacted by our environment in really profound ways. And when we allow for that impact to shape our world building, we we end up stewarding a different kind of world. And that's an ethical sense, right? Uh, that the, the, the kind of world we build 
or orient toward um, is important. I want, I want this direction that says Dr. Schwartz nods vigorously. <laughs> yes, I'm nodding vigorously throughout everything that Dr. Robin is saying. You know, I feel like, I feel like um, we need to be breaking bread more often and we need to be in, in conversation more often because um, you have so much richness to, to, to offer us. And I feel really grateful that we could get you on the podcast um, for this very important series and I have I have a commitment to, and I think Reverend Anna shares this to help build the discourse around scholarship and activism in, in a more cohesive manner. Not colonial, I don't mean cohesive in colonial sense, but just a more robust sense around how do we do scholarship and activism because that that's what the Activist Theology Project is all about. And so, always you're always welcome to to join us and we hope that we can have you back to have another conversation um in due time it has been my absolute delight and pleasure um down to my toes to be here in this place with you and yes i every time we see each other i am utterly um, filled with joy Mm. at your presence and being and um, to be able to sit in this space and talk about the things that matter um, and then talk too about how um, scholarship so much is a part of activism, that it's not a bifurcation of it. But I was thinking about systems and how in a system, every piece matters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so everything that we can do in a ways that to decolonialize and de-imperialize um, the system is necessary and yes. neat and right. So yes. it's been a joy and I can't wait until we can um, sit around a table and eat wonderful food together and um, share space and breathe together. Yes. Aren't we all looking to that to be able yes. to breathe together? Yes. Without a mask. Without a mask. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Schwartz, could you share with our listeners how they can uh, be in touch with you, how they might be able to reach out and, and be in conversation with you about some of the um, thoughts that you shared with us today? Um, I am on Twitter and my handle is at BY Schwartz. Um, and uh, that's a place where um, I on occasion will say things, but I, I check my DMs often. Um, mostly I am retweeting nerdy things because I'm a big sci fi and, and uh, RPG player. So <laughs> I'm often doing that's how I, that's how I, um, relax in these days. Um, you can also reach me at my email at, at Claremont at yschwartz at cst.edu. Great. I love it. Thank you so much. We, again, remain grateful for this conversation, grateful for your work in the world. Friends, we will be back again next week with more um, activist theology and more connecting of dots. Um, We encourage you, as always, um, your role in this work is to get your own hands dirty, to be a part of the work in the world and to find the ways that you use the things that we are able to share with you and use the voices that you hear on this podcast to um, connect the dots in your own world and to go further and deeper into your own work and your own activism. Don't forget to follow us at Activist Theology on all the platforms. We are 
and would love to be in conversation with you um, anytime you want to share with us. If you have ideas, if there are things you'd like to hear Dr. Robin and I talk about, let us know. And until next week, Dr. Robin, um, what a rich and beautiful conversation this was. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm grateful for it. And I know that um, I know that our listeners will be too. Yeah, I just I'm reminded how rich um, our communities are, and how much wisdom our community brings. Yes, um, this this entire series with um, our shared Asian kin has been utterly remarkable. Yes, and we're ending it on a really beautiful note and challenge again to build the kind of world we long to inhabit. And I feel really grateful. Same. We'll see everyone next week. And the challenge always is to get free. It is. It is. You remind us that every week. Yeah. Thanks, friends. Until next week. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. 